Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. This time, I'm going to be the one answering the questions. Last spring, I was invited to speak at the Orzakken Audio Festival in Amsterdam. I remember seeing the leaves come out on the trees along the canals and tulips blooming on the bridges. The first night I was there, I was interviewed on stage by the hosts of the Podcast Club, a Dutch podcast that begins like this. Welkom bij de Podcast Club. The Podcast Club is a book club for podcasts. We invite podcast makers and ask them everything about their work. And we allow fans to meet their idols and ask their questions. This session is recorded at the Torpedo Theater, the, the smallest, smallest theater in Amsterdam. Have fun! Welcome to the 11th episode of the Podcast Club. Uh, today we're doing it all in English because this is our first international edition. Oh my god. Oh my god. Um, and we are recording this on the 28th of March. And it's Orzaak and Eve, yeah. which we're very excited about. We have an international guest. There's people coming from Belgium. Um, <laughs> that's so another country too. <laughs> but, and that's starting tomorrow, but this is like a pre here and we have a, a very exclusive guest. But let me ex- let, I'll let you explain what the podcast lip is for people who are listening. We yeah, might have and some also new for English people who are here, um, because the podcast club started a year and a half ago, and Lieve Heremans and myself, Misha Benita, we started this uh, because we wanted to hear from makers uh, about their process of making podcasts, and we host this every month. We ask someone else to tell us about their podcasts, and tonight we have Scott Carrier here. He has come oh all God. the way from Salt Lake City. Give him a warm hand. (laughs) Scott is um, an award-winning producer. He's known for his uh, productions for This American Life, but tonight the subject, uh, of course, will be his own podcast called Home of the Brave. Mm. Uh, The podcast has been running for uh, about four years now, almost exactly four years. And uh, it's fully listener-supported. And uh, we as a podcast club, I guess we really are for independent producers. So we're super excited to have you here, Scott. Oh, thanks. It's really nice to be here. Let's uh, start with a section or a fragment, because I guess, Scott, you're kind of known for your infamous voiceovers and introductions. So let's just listen to uh, actually the first uh, fragment from the second season, because that's what we're going to focus on tonight. The first season has about 80 episodes, and now there's seven out in the second season. Um, let's see if this works. Welcome back to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. I started this podcast three and a half years ago by asking the question, is this the end of the world as we know it? I'm going to begin this second season by answering, yes, this is the end of the world as we know it. We're not going to stop the climate from changing. We won't win the war on terrorism There will be no social revolution. Hope for solutions is false hope, an illusion. So the question for the second season becomes, how do you live a good life, a meaningful and moral life in a world that's falling apart all around you? There's got to be a way because we've been through this before. We've survived the collapse of empires. We've lived through the Ice Age. Somehow we got through it, but how? I asked my friend Alex Caldiero 
and he told me to mind my own business. Mind your own business, meaning, he said, keep doing what you're good at, what you enjoy. Keep working at that and don't quit. That's how we get through it, by everybody minding their own business and not giving up, because that's what the man, big brother, wants, to force you to stop minding your own business so you can mind his business all the time. So I'm going to start minding my own business by driving down to the border to talk to people about the immigration situation. I don't even know what to call it. It's not an invasion. The number of people coming north over the past few years is about a third what it was back before the economic crash of 2008. And it's not a crisis. We've had thousands of people crossing the border illegally every day for decades, a million or more a year. They end up finding jobs and paying taxes, and they commit far fewer violent crimes than people who were born here. This is not a crisis, except for the people who walked away from their homes in Central America with nothing. I think what's changed, what's different now, is the way we look at them, the immigrants. They are the other, not us, and we're projecting our own fears onto them. Soon they will be zombies. I'm going to drive down there as soon as I post this episode. All right. I, I hadn't listened to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's still good. I forgot the zombie part, yeah. <laughs> Soon they will be zombies. How do you feel about it now? About that? Mm -hmm. I think I still feel like all that. That was uh, probably four months ago, mm -hmm. five months ago. So I did a series, uh, four stories, interviewing people who'd come north with the caravan mm -hmm. along the border. And then since nobody seemed to be doing it, other news organizations, and they weren't producing stories from Central America to see what it's like down there, I thought, well, I, I can go down there. So I went to Honduras. I thought, I'll travel around all of Central America. It's actually not that easy. But so I just concentrated on Honduras and did three stories from there. And that's driving down there... Is I, what you mean by... I didn't drive. Your I wanted to drive. Oh, okay. I told her it wasn't a good idea. I wanted Julian Cardona, the photographer in Juarez, who helped me with the first story. Hmm. He said, it's just there's too many roadblocks. It's not safe for him. It wouldn't have been safe for him, a Mexican, right, to so go you, through the roadblocks. It would have been okay for me. But going there and interviewing people who usually don't get a voice in the mainstream media, that's minding your own business? Because that seems to be the starting point for the second season. Yeah, talking to people who don't normally get interviewed by the mass media or the corporate media, but it's mainly just to try to get the get it right, you know, to be accurate about what's happening and why. And interviewing people is part of that. But then the qu obvious question is, what's wrong, and where do you correct that? Well, we got to be specific. What What do you mean? Well, except for this first season. Well, actually, the second season. The question is, what triggers you? When do you think, oh my God, this is a story I need to mind in my business too? Right. right. So when I started my podcast, I didn't really know what I was going to do uh, from week to week or you know, every two weeks I was trying, or three weeks. But then it became clear that my audience liked it when I covered things that were being missed by the corporate media or being you know, they just got it wrong, which happens a lot. And so I would cover 
things that were in the news and I think do a better job. And so uh, that's not all that I do. That's one one of the things I try to do on Home of the Brave because I think it performs a you know, certain function or role and people appreciate it. But what do you do differently? <laughs> well, I talk to people who are actually there, which I think often gets missed in corporate. Like, for instance, Central America, all these Central Americans are leaving their homes now to come to the United States. And the number of stories being produced down there by the larger news organizations, about zero, maybe one a year for each of them. And why is it? What does and that, what stops it, I mean, that's the thing that you do is you go to the place where it's happening to talk to people who are actually there because the closest you can get to the truth is the first-hand account. So why don't they do that? I don't know. Oh, well, um, they don't need to. It's cheaper if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, you can sell the story that these people are dangerous without going down there. And if you go down there, you'll realize that they're not dangerous. And that screws up your whole profit scheme. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because stories, scary stories sell. They make money. Not just in the United States, all over the world. That's what we want. Can't get enough of it. And it's easier to make scary stories from a distance. It's kind of easier, yeah. Well, I, no, you can, make a, you can make a scary story if you go there as well. But. Yeah. Because by going there, you often put yourself at risk? Maybe. Kind of? Not really. The, often places are said to be dangerous or risky, and they're not. Mm -hmm. It's a common thing. So whether I'm putting myself at risk or not, uh, and often the people who help me are much more at risk than I am. Because they're Because they live there. They don't mm -hmm. get to fly away. And people see them helping me, and that can be dangerous for them and a lot of time people don't actually want to talk to you or they do sometimes people don't want to talk to me but it's easy they just say no I so, have no problem with that and so then you go there and then in the narration you apply within the episodes you often obviously you reflect on how you experience the stories and in addition to giving your vantage point you talk about how you experience it personally and we found a segment or actually an entire episode let's listen to that welcome to home of the brave i'm scott carrier a few days ago i was in the tropical northern part of honduras standing outside a bus station with about 500 people who were waiting to leave for the united states not by bus but by walking in a caravan. It had been raining off and on for most of the day, and the sky was dark with heavy clouds. Half the people standing around me were males in their early 20s. The other half were families, mainly single moms with little kids and babies. They were going to start walking at night in the dark and then try to stay together for more than 2,000 miles because there are robbers gangs of thieves and murderers all along the way. A young man or a family traveling alone would have no chance of survival, but there's safety in a large group, everybody watching out for one another. I was talking with a woman, interviewing her on tape, a caller Maria, about 30 years old with curly hair pulled back tight in a bun. 
She was holding her one-year-old daughter in her arms, and her two sons, both with their grade school backpacks, were standing at her side. They were so innocent. It seemed impossible and wrong what they were going to attempt, but I'd seen mothers like Maria with little kids who'd made it all the way to Tijuana with the caravan last fall because everybody stayed together. Once they got to the border, however, they were on their own. I wondered how much Maria knew about the border, so I asked her, do you know how you'll cross over into the United States? She said no, but that she was praying for God to help them. And when she said this, I saw in my mind a vivid image of her with her children standing alone in the Sonoran Desert, 80 miles south of Tucson. I'd seen it before. I was there in 2005 and had watched mothers with babies walk north across the desert, and I found out days later they didn't make it. I ended up producing a story that won an award, but the women and kids didn't come back to life. So I told Maria, don't do it. Don't go. It's too hard. The desert is brutal, and the Border Patrol might take your kids away. She stood there silently, looking at me, and then tears started running down her face. She couldn't stay home. The street gangs and the poverty, no real health care, no real education, robberies, murders, kidnappings every day. She had to leave, and the only hope she had was in making it to America. And I took that hope, her dream, and I crushed it. It was like I was watching her dissolve from the inside out. And my whole body said, no, none of this should be happening. I can't do this. And I turned off my tape recorder. Maria and her kids left with the others a couple of hours after it got dark. I've been back home now for a few days, and I've yet to listen to any of the tape I recorded in Honduras. Maybe I'm waiting for this feeling to go away, the feeling of lingering shock like when something really bad happens and you're still standing and breathing, but all meaning and identity are gone. Then, when things start to come back, they're weaker, injured, more like ghosts. It's not only that you're different, it's now you're made of ghosts. They call it trauma. Since I've been back, all the news is about building the wall. The same arguments, fictions, shouted back and forth. We need to stop this nonsense and start focusing on what makes people flee their homes in the first place. That's why I went to Honduras, to see what can be done to break the cycles of poverty and violence. Friends and family told me not to go, that it was too dangerous. But I thought, and still think, ignorance, turning away, arguing about a wall, is only going to make things worse. More violence, more poverty, more caravans. So I went to Honduras, and I met only friendly people who wanted to help me. I met people there who know how to solve their problems and have devoted their lives to making it happen. They come from different walks of life but share one thing in common, a sense of responsibility, a moral obligation to help others in need. So over the next few weeks on this program, 
and we'll play their stories. Um, what I found really special about this episode is that when I listened to it for the second time, only then I noticed that there's actually, it's only you talking, it's only narration. Um, and you I would have sworn yeah. that I heard this woman, that I heard her voice, huh. but it's just you. Two other people to have told me that. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's strange each time. I was like, there's no way I, there's no ambience in there. There's nothing. I didn't, I know I didn't use her, but I thought maybe I mixed some ambience in there and I didn't go back and listen to it, but I just thought, no, he's wrong. So what's going on there? Yeah. I, I, I don't know what's going on there. Tell the story. Do you think about it or before you, do you write everything down and do you think about how to make it as vivid as possible or do you just start telling the story? No, I write quite a bit over and over and over. Same thing over and over and over. Uh, lots of rewrites. Usually that one, not so many. I, it was like two days after I got back and it just kind of came out that way. Um, and that's, I don't usually do that. Just an episode where it's just me talking. But in this one, I thought it just worked better that way. Not to play her and just to describe it like that. Yeah, I think it works really well. Yeah. It's a nice thing about having your own podcast. You can really, you know, do whatever you want. And yeah. So um, I thought, well, I'll just do it that way. And no one said, no, you can't. I just <laughs> did it. The episode, that's basically a voiceover. You speak of your own experience and then that you eventually turn off your recorder, which makes it very fragile. And you put yourself basically at the center of the story by doing this. In this one. Mm-hmm. Why did I do that? Mm -hmm. um, at this point, I kind of try to think about what do I want the listener to feel? You know, that's what I, I start thinking about that. Because, you know, you can say it's that old saying, it's like sh show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. You can tell someone it doesn't work. But if you actually make it happen, that's the point. So I think, well, what is it that I want them to feel? Like what I felt there when I was there. It's like the way to do it is to try to convey that emotion with only words with only words yeah but they're good words work really well <laughs> sometimes <laughs> i'll take words and you so give me that to work with on a more general note this is a quite short episode it's about five minutes but the length of the episodes really differ so i was wondering how do you know where to start the story and where to end it Okay, good question. It's really hard to answer that. I mean, that's the whole problem is tr trying to figure out where to start it, how to start it. Because if you have a good beginning, everything else falls in the line. If you something wrong with the beginning, it's like you know, it's harder. But yeah, you know, you never know. There's there's not really an answer to that. I don't think you just have to struggle through it. For me, I'll talk for myself. It's like, what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish in this? And it's like, well, how do I want to make the listener feel? What is the emotion here? Um, because a story is basically a series of emotions. It's like, as writers, we manipulate the reader or the listener's emotions through a story. That's kind of the point, because that's how stories work. Good ones, anyway. So do you work uh, mainly uh, as a writer, also as you're making podcasts? Is it the same technique? Well, it's writing for radio. I've also written magazine articles, you know, for print. So it's different. Um, in writing for print, you just don't have the sound. 
of course. So, and there's so much information in sound. And so, you know, it's nice to have it. And that's why I like radio. You can really transpose the emotions you felt while you were there on the ground. Because you're not just a writer, you actually, you're a documentarian, right? Yeah, I think of myself as a documentarian. It's a hard word to say, but that's what I think that I'm doing. I've heard in other interviews that you wanted to make cinema verite. Yeah. Which is a type of filmmaking where there's basically no narration. Right. But it didn't work out. It's difficult for him to pull off. No narration. But it's the idea that this is real. You know, now we're actually being able to tell real stories because we're not going to narrate. Mm -hmm. We're just going to show what actually happened. But it doesn't, sometimes, I think why you said it doesn't work is because there's, you can't actually do that. All stories are constructed. You know, reality just occurs in front of us, but we construct some narrative out of that. So all stories are made up in that sense. And then you have to put it in writing and then you can use the audio you recorded. The audio, I find the best pieces of tape or best pieces of audio that I have. That's the best way to start. And so I think of the narration as a way to introduce or set up what happens with the audio. That's how I, I think about writing for radio. You start with the actual documented fi you know, files, whatever we call it. We used to call it tape. I think mm -hmm. it's probably still the best word. Those are the most important things. Yeah. And then there, you have hours and hours, obviously. Do you have Sometimes, to transcribe yeah. stuff? No, I don't, because I'm a slow typer. Uh -huh. So you just listen to it? I listen, and I find the best places just slowly, you know, trying to figure out. It helps to have someone else there. And how does that work? I don't know how it works, but when you have someone else in the room, you just listen to things differently. Hmm. I, I don't know what that is. We don't have a word for it. <laughs> it's a strange phenomenon. It happens to almost everybody. Let's uh, go to another segment. Can right. you introduce it? Uh, this is from also from the second season of Home of Brave, uh, <coughs> from the episode called Casa del Migrante. Um, and yeah, I think we can just listen to it. It's an interview with a woman uh, traveling to the United States. It's a, a, a place for refugees run by the Catholic Church in Juarez. In Juarez. Juarez, Mexico, which is right on the border with the U.S. While we were talking with Juana, the other woman from Guatemala waited, holding her three-year-old daughter. So we started to talk to her. Estela Magdalena Simón Esteban, 23 years old. Yeah. ¿De dónde viene? ¿Where are you coming from? ¿De dónde viene? Where are you coming from? De Guatemala. De Guatemala. Sí. ¿Qué ciudad? Eh, de Playa Grande, Mayalán. ¿Plaga? Eh, ¿Cómo se llama? ¿Plaga Maya, Mayalán, Ixcán y El Quiche. Gracias. Ese es el nombre de su pueblo. La comunidad donde yo vivo. La comunidad donde se vive. Sí. ¿Cuándo ¿Cuándo se salió? Hace cuatro meses. Four months ago. ¿Were you afraid? Or did you feel good? How did you feel when you left your home? ¿Tiene miedo o se sentía bien cuando dejó su casa? Por miedo me vine yo acá. I came here because of fear. So the day that you decided to leave your house, what were you thinking that day, right before you left? El día que usted dejó su casa, ¿qué estaba pensando ese día, el mero día que usted dejó su casa? Pues yo lo que vengo, a, lo que yo quiero es asilo. What I want is uh, asylum, and she's crying. Well, 
What were you afraid of when you were at home? De que tenía miedo en casa. Es que como yo, cuando estaba yo en casa, eh, tuve una amenaza que como mi marido está acá en los Estados Unidos y, y el hombre que... There's, uh, his husband is in the U.S. and there's a man who wants uh, want her to be, become his lover. She is all the time refused and, and he gave her threats, death threats. And that's why she left her town. ¿En qué lugar está su marido? En... Salisbury, Maryland. Salisbury, Maryland. Her husband is there. ¿En qué trabaja allí? En el campo. He works uh, in the fields. In Maryland. In Maryland. Do you know where Maryland is from here? ¿Sabe cómo llegar a Maryland de aquí? No. Pues pedir ayuda a que me apoyen. I have to, to ask for help to reach there because I don't want to be there. And in Guatemala, we don't get jobs because we are Indians. And the man who was threatening me, threatening me, threatening me, is wealthy. And he said, you are worthless, you are nothing. So it was going for a year. And, uh, that's what I told my, my husband. I, I don't want to stay here. I want, I want to be there. Yeah, I think this is one of the most happy stories. You, what you just said, that you really feel uh, her emotions. Oh, good. Makes yeah, and hearing good. Julian's voice, I love always hearing Julian. He's a really, photographer, right? Yeah, um, and they wouldn't have let us in there that day if he wouldn't have been with me. Because he spoke Spanish, or because he's kind of not—he's famous in Juarez as um, being incorruptible. Uh, most people, journalists in Mexico, end up working for a, a corporate paper, and mm. you basically just work for the for the uh, cartels, and so you're corrupted. But Julian refuses to work for anybody, and he's he's known as the you know in Mexico they have professional wrestlers that wear masks and they sort of perform you know, they have a persona. Julian's kind of known as the incorruptible one. I, I've been wow. with him on the street, and I turn around, he's not there, and I turn around, and some woman is just burying him in a hug. <laughs> so he's kind of well known around wow. town. But how did you find him? Through Charles Bowden, a friend who was a writer, he's passed away a few years ago. He was he found Julian, and they worked on a number of stories together. And then I could put their stories on the radio, so I started working with them and covering the border through basically their work um, because they lived down there. And uh, there was a program in the United States that wanted you know, stories about it, so that they were the best way to tell the stories. Mm. I thought. So he's a way in and. Right, he's like the guide. The guide? Yeah. Guides are really important, I think. Yeah, because how does it work? You go to Mexico, you go to Honduras, and how do you start making the stories? Right. Um, it really helps to have a guide. I just, you know, lucky with Julian, so I've known him for a couple decades. But in Honduras, I didn't know anybody when I went there. and I, But I did have a couple contacts through a listener who'd been in the Peace Corps in Honduras. 
And she said, I worked with these people. You should call them. She wrote me an email. And so when I got there, I called them. And uh, one of the people on that list just turned out to be invaluable. Basically, all the stories came from her, from calling this woman who's a doctor at the medical school in Tegucigalpa and had worked with the Peace Corps. And she's very nice, friendly, and smart woman. And she basically understood what I needed. And things fell into place because of her help. And she connected you to other people and to stories. Yeah. She had a really good sense for it. And that's basically, a lot of times, that's my method of operation, is go someplace completely, uh, you know, ignorant, not ignorant, but um, vulnerable in a way, not knowing what, how I'm going to make, get a story, or uh, not, the foreign country, foreign language, um, you know, I don't look like I'm from there. And then it's kind of like being a fish flopping out of water on the beach, just, you know, helpless. And then having confidence in human kindness. That's basically um, my method of operation, that yeah. people will go out of their way to help me because they believe in communicating, letting people know what's happening where they live. That's People understand it very quickly. And they're willing to go out of their way, sometimes at risk of their own life, to, to help. And does it also sometimes not work, that you don't find a story, that you're walking around? Yeah, I mean, some definitely end up better than others. And I think, you know, it's often better to prepare. Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But how do you prepare? Because you go there, <laughs> you put go yourself there? on the line, and then do you have I do questions? I mean, or? I prepare as much as I can, um, maybe. Maybe not. I think I do depend too much on just random chance sometimes. But give an example of how you can how you prepare for, for example, this. Story. Which one? The, if you go to Honduras and then you read a lot of books about it, I guess. No, there's not enough time. I mean, it's like um, I'm not an expert on Honduras, uh, but I can do something. So, I thought it's better just to go down there and and, and start, and see what you know learn as much as I can before I go. I read as much as I could before I, I went. And then, you know, just try to do the best job under the time circumstances. And then you get your guide, and then you interview the people. Well, it really helps to have a guide, mm -hmm. because there's no way I can understand the culture. Yeah, and you don't speak Spanish. I don't speak a lot. Yeah, a lot of places I go, I don't speak the language. And so a lot of, th yeah, it really does come down to, uh, like, seeing other places through someone who lives there. I don't know any other. That's the best way to do it. And you, before you said that podcasting gives you a lot of freedom, is it also this aspect of the work that you can just go wherever you like? No one's telling you to go to Honduras or to not go to Honduras? Yeah, it's very nice to be in that situation. It's a real learning experience. I thought, oh, I can do whatever I want. And then when I really had that opportunity, I thought, well, I'm actually very limited. I, there's so many things I can't do just because I don't have, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't <laughs> tell jokes very well. So, and then, you know, it's like some people have said all my stories sound the same, like Ira Glass, I think, said that. This is just one story. So, you know, I have my limits. So. He said all your stories sound the same? Well, it's all one story, I think, is what he said. Hmm. Um, do you feel that way? Well, I can see why he said that but uh, I try to do different forms so what is your one styles. story 
I don't know. That's a good question. We should ask Guy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I really don't know. Um, I just try to, you know, when I try to think up story ideas, I just like, well, what do I want to know? What do I want to know? Um, that's the basic question I ask myself. And then is that something that would make a good story or a bad story? Is it something that's possible? Like there's a lot of places I would like to go now that's just not a good idea. I Where? can't go. Well, the places we're fighting wars hmm. um, uh, because of kidnapping and also because uh, the people who help you, this isn't very well known, but anybody who does um, foreign correspondence and, you know, dangerous places, the people who are at risk are the people who help them. Yeah. And um, that's a real problem. And I don't have any way to protect the people once I leave. I mean, yeah. I, when I was in Afghanistan, the, my guide there, he's in the United States, but that's the only one I've really gotten out. And you helped him get to the United yeah, States? Yeah, we got him out. Yeah, he went to the university where I was teaching at the time. And that's the only way to really protect someone well yeah and then there's families there too as well it's not just them i mean it's a really difficult situation yeah and a lot of the people who are leaving afghanistan when i did this series on people coming into europe northern europe in 2015 a lot of the afghans were people who'd worked for the u.s military as translators and just people in the military um, and they had to flee because they'd, they'd been allies with the u.s Yeah, remember the story you did in Greece where you Right, at Lesbos. The, a lot of the people that we were getting off the boats when we were in Lesbos were Afghans. Yeah, and they also told you that they were working. They, they, were, Hazar working. they were ethnic Hazaras, and they were basically being wiped out by the Pashtuns. So they, And they were the ones who helped us. A lot of our allies in Afghanistan are Hazaras. Yeah. And then because... So that's a problem. If I yeah. I can't go to these places because it's just, you know, I, I'm going to get in a car at some point, and when you get in a car, you can be kidnapped. Um, I'm told. I yeah. think about jumping out, you know, in my mind, <laughs> but that's it me. doesn't happen. <laughs> Usually, people just stay in the car and get kidnapped. Um, so it's too dangerous for you and too dangerous for the people who help yeah, you. Yeah, it's not. I, I really don't want to be kidnapped. I put my family and people yeah. through that. Of course, you don't yeah. want to be kidnapped. Um, um, <laughs> I'm wondering so, about this. I would like to talk. I would like to talk to the leaders of the opposition, of the forces that were fighting. I would like to go straight yeah. to the leaders and just talk to them. Um, that might be hard as well. Well, it might be rather dangerous. Yeah. So podcasting is not as free as you wish it was. I'm not complaining about that at no. all. I mean, I, podcasting or whatever, I still couldn't go to those places. Yeah. I think podcasting's a good thing right now. Yeah, I also think so. Um, but what I, what I think was interesting about what you told uh, about when you went to Honduras yeah. is that it was through this woman who listened to Home of the Brave yeah. and she helped you. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is also something that happens often with podcasts that the audience is very much engaged do you feel that it's more that people are more engaged with podcasts than with radio maybe or do you feel people are very engaged with home of the brave yes you're right i think that's true um there is something about podcasting where the audience feels like they're involved in the production of the 
of the show, um, much more than with the radio. And why is this? Why is there this I don't know difference? why. I don't really know why. I think it came from the audience. It didn't come from me because my stories are basically the same before and after podcasting. They're not that much different. No. So I think it that rose up from the bo- podcasting audience. Is it, it a came different from bottom audience? up? Yeah, it's different for me because a lot of people don't never listen to. Actually, my audience primarily came from This American Life listeners, but the podcasting audience is definitely different, or at least I hear from them. I didn't used yeah. to hear from people. Uh, when my stories were just on radio programs. Okay, let's talk about <coughs> the change and podcasting a little bit more. You've made 93 episodes now. I just today finished listen- listening to all of them. Wow. Because I'm a huge fan now. <laughs> I, and I was you wondering... You get a free t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um... I was wondering if I could make up a general theme and I was, I think it's about you want to investigate how we as humans devise up the world, whether it be with physical borders, metaphysical rituals or religion or, and then the subject becomes conflict. Yeah. I'm, I studied cultural anthropology when I was in college a long time ago, and I still think of things in terms of cultural mm. differences. And that's kind of, I think, what you're describing there. I'm interested in uh, how humans vary across the globe because of culture mm-hmm. and the kind of messes it gets us into. Mm. And then also some of the good stuff it can you know, get us out of sometimes. So I, I kind of look at things that way on an anthropological, cultural level. But that doesn't do much for a theme. That We couldn't sell that. <laughs> Damn. I know, it's hard. I, I, don't, I wish I could come up with a theme, but that's a good, pretty close. Well, maybe we can come up with a theme <laughs> in the break. All right. How about that? Stopping the music. Ooh. Oh, welcome uh, terug bij deel 2. Oh, that oh was welcome sudden. back. <laughs> <laughs> Starting in Dutch. Um, the, in this part, you have the opportunity to ask all your questions to Scott Carrier. Uh, but we'll start with another small clip. Yeah, because uh, this part is about our big love. It's called podcasting. Okay. And um, we're just going to do the outro of uh, Casa del Migrante, which is an episode from the second season, which makes it quite clear uh, how you kind of make the podcast, I guess. Here at Home and the Brave, our philosophy is first do the stories, then figure out how to get paid. It's a little scary sometimes, but always before when I asked for money, lots of people posted up and it came out okay. Okay, more soon. Thanks for listening. All right. So about this business model. Okay. Doing the stories first and then figuring out the funding later. Yeah. How does it work? Sounds tricky. Yeah. um, It's been working all right. I'm at this point. I'm not in debt um, due to two four years. 
Yeah, I do two two kind of big contributions actually. If I just was depending on the listener, like the broad mass of people sending me money, I would still be in debt. But uh, two wealthy people kind of posted up, gave me uh, enough money to get out of debt. When I first started, it worked really well. I, I think I brought in close to a hundred thousand hmm. dollars the first year. Do you want to know that stuff? Sounds sure. good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But then it dropped, and then it came back up, and then it dropped and dropped, and then I just took a break. And when I came back, when I took a break, I cut off all the subscriptions. Mm-hmm. I canceled all the subscriptions because I didn't want um, people paying for work I wasn't doing because then I would lose their trust. And basically, the thing works on trust. That's what I found. Um, I don't like asking for money. It makes me feel kind of like a preacher, a radio preacher, but... <laughs> Uh, when I do ask for money, people send it, which is really nice. And I thought we might go to uh, some questions of the audience. Really? Uh, no, maybe not. <laughs> okay. Or do you still have a question? Yeah, I have a, mm, a question because in one of the interviews, or actually a talk you gave, you said, you don't think podcasting or radio is very different, and this is a really ongoing question in the podcast club how does podcasting differ from radio and you said it doesn't really there's no big differences at the moment but it has a potential to be something totally different can you elaborate on that thought do you remember it yeah um yeah i've been thinking a lot about that lately but let me go back to what you were saying before about the listener contributions the Mm -hmm. good thing about listener contributions i should have said this before But it's a kind of an uncomfortable subject with me because I really don't like you know, asking for money. But the thing that's good about it is that when money comes from a large number of different people and they're sending $4 a month or $10 a month or something like that, I'm not really beholding to, any, to anybody. Um, for instance, one of these checks that I accepted from a wealthy person, you know, there is I know what kind of story she wants. And so I think about that. And I, that's not something that anybody can get away from. We all know where our paychecks come from. And I believe in most people, what we say has a lot to do with who's paying us. It's just hard not to do that subconsciously or just outright up front. And so that is a problem in media today is that it's based on profit model. And that the things that people say, every sentence that's written, whether it's for radio, television, is is at some point being considered, is this going to make us money? Every sentence, really. And so when a lot of people con- contribute from all around the world, it's kind of liberating in a way because you don't feel this presence that if you say something wrong, your money will get cut off. You might say something wrong. Everybody will do it, but the chances are less that everybody's going to bail at once um, type thing. So it's really the best business model. It's just that it's not, I'm not very comfortable with doing it. That's a better answer. Sorry, I should have said that before. Um, as far as this other question about how podcasting is different than radio, podcasting reaches around the world, which is, you know, it's very inexpensive. You have to have a computer and a website but basically with those two tools you can do you can make a podcast and you can press a button and it goes around the world instantaneously with no loss in quality 
And that's new, you know, for someone my age, back in analog tape and things like that. And to get your story to go around the world, you had to work for a large corporation, multi-million dollar corporation, or even across the United States. NPR, when I started, you know, national broadcast every day. But they had big building in Washington, staff full of engineers, all kinds of people making that one show a day, all things considered possible. So it was a completely different structure to work within. And now, through the World Wide Web, it just seems like it's such a gift in a way that you can produce a story and send it out and people all over the planet, really. I get le letters from all continents. People hear it. And it seems like with the web, there's this, you know, that's a good word for it, but I think of it as like a lattice in English. The word's lattice, but I was asking you guys before. It's a social lattice of support friends and family or a community what were you saying that the fung nuts you guys you understand know. that word fung nuts <laughs> that's I, it exists it happens um, that's how human beings have lived for a million years or whatever is through this that lattice of social support we're not individuals a lot of the way that we're taught and a lot of the stories we tell make us feel like we're alone but that's not the case we exist in a social structure of support it's like a lattice to me i mean and it's just you know it's kind of ethereal it's hard to pin down it's hard to say how many people are listening and where they are i don't i'm not i don't do that but i you know i can it does exist it is a real thing yeah and it's not just for me it's for all anybody can do it that's not true. I mean, you have to work. It takes work. It takes talent. It takes time. It takes experience. But it is possible, and that's different now. Yeah. Are we yeah. ready to open up the, the floor <laughs> I think to we the are. audience? Uh, where, where's Paula? Uh, we Paula is our walking microphone. Oh, maybe you can. Uh, sorry, maybe you can uh, say your name. Um, uh, first, short encouragement. Uh, sorry, I'm uh, Albert Jab Schipper. Um, first, a short encouragement, and then a question. Um, uh, you t you told us about your preparation, and you uh, uh, th there was a silence, and you started doubting. Uh, don't don't doubt. I think I think no preparation is often the best preparation, and the proof is in your uh, in your work. I think so. Uh, it's it's like um, preparation can can ruin a lot of things. So I think it's the power of your work is just the way you do it. Um, my question. Um, if I read between the lines, I can um, uh, I can see uh, I, I think I see a mission, um, uh, but you don't you you haven't told us uh, your mission, uh, and if you <laughs> can tell us and, and you have one, uh, do you think podcast is uh, is is the best way to achieve your mission? Yeah, for me, I, because I'm good at radio. Um, I mean, I seem to have talent at radio, and so it works. Podcasting's worked out well for me. And so my mission or what I try to do, I just try to um, get it right, you know. I try to, that's what my goal is for each story. I don't, I haven't really been able to put anything together past each story at the time. And then I think of what I'm going to do next. I don't, I should have a, a larger mission. 
but I'm really just for me it's the satisfaction like when I feel like I when I get it right that's that's what I'm going for let's take two more questions and then we have something really nice to listen to still yeah hi my name is Eva and I was just wondering um, uh, what it does to you to kind of like as a as a storyteller to jump into a story tell the story and leave again jump to the next story and and, and tell it because I noticed that I uh, as a journalist struggle with that sometimes in the hopes of that story maybe changing something and not knowing if it will so I was wondering what it does to you and your motivation to tell the story that I'm always changing places and subjects <laughs> instead of being focused on one beat or assignment or p country like that yeah not no I yeah like that uh, the f I think it's something that's part of being a journalist like that you change topic quite often but I just wonder what it like does to you and your motivation uh, um. I don't know because I haven't had it another way any other way so I don't I know what you're talking about and it is a I think it's a problem and a good thing both to be, you know, to go into some place and only stay there three weeks. I was only in Honduras for 10 days. So it's like, what what can I say when I'm only there for 10 days that's any good at all? It's worth anything at all. Um, you know, anybody that wants to be believed should at least spend a few years there. But on the other hand, it's not that hard to go into some place and then tell people what it's like to be there at least from your experience. And uh, I think people need to know that. We need more stories about what it's like on a, in other places in the world, you know, daily if possible. And so I think those stories fill a need that way because there's just a real lack of information about what's happening in other places. Um, but is it sometimes hard for you to leave those stories or the people who tell you the stories? I, you know, I don't see it's hard for me. I, don't, I mean, it's a, you know, it's nice to be able to do it. I don't think that's a hard part. Mm. I mean, I feel privileged to be able to travel and meet people in different parts of the world. That's a real privilege. I mean, you have to make this, your choices in your work, whatever you do, you know, how you're going to approach certain things. And so... I think of it like that. It's like, well, if this is what I'm going to do. What's the best way to do it? How do I approach this? All right. I think this was it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Scott. Yeah. And I want to thank you, Misha. I want to thank you. And uh, Scott, of course, <laughs> thanks a lot for being yeah. here. And you all and yourself. questions. And have yeah. a now good Now you're time. allowed to play. I'd like to thank Levin Hermans and Misha Melitza of the Podcast Club for inviting me to speak in the very old and very cozy Torpedo Theater in Amsterdam. There's a link to the full interview on our website, homebrave.com. And also on the website, there are buttons to push to donate and subscribe to support this show. I'm working now on a new series of anti-war stories that will be up in the next few weeks. I'd like to thank Chris Jones for helping out and thank you very much for listening.